Good morning. And uh, I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus. We're really glad you're here. And uh, I hope you feel a warm welcome, whether you've been here a long time or just uh, your first week. We are delighted you are here. Anybody uh, country music fans around here? Um, I uh, keep thinking I should be more of one. Yes, I see that hand. Um, I found myself tuning in this week to uh, the Country Music Awards. I don't know if you saw those, and uh, I'm always impressed with them. And I'm impressed with country music as well as other genres of music that so capture the heartfelt lament of our world. We do live in a messed up world, don't we? And we feel the brokenness of it. I remember as a young boy uh, listening to one of the prophets with a small p of our generation, Bob Dylan. You remember the song, Everything is Broken? Let me give you some of the words. It's so powerful. He says, broken bottles, broken places, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, street filled with broken hearts. Everything is broken. Broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes, broken tools, people bending broken rules. Everything is broken. But it's not only Bob Dylan who speaks for a generation. One of my favorite newer bands is the British folk band Mumford & Sons. I'm sure we have some fans of them. They have a pretty amazing album called Babel, and one of my favorite songs is Wander, Hopeless Wander. And here are a few of the words they say. I wrestled long, long with my youth. We tried so hard to live in the truth, but do not tell me all is fine. Do not tell me all is fine. See, whether we are a person of faith or not a person of faith at this point, we all wrestle deeply, don't we? We wrestle deeply with how badly broken our lives and our world really is. Regardless of our philosophy of life or worldview or framing of life, to seek coherence, we all long to make sense of it. But it's not easy to do, is it? In a globally connected nanosecond information world, it seems to me that perhaps we experience, unlike any humans before us, in a more amplified way, the bombardment of evil and suffering and cruelty in our world. And I want to suggest to you that the question of God and his existence and how God fits into the mess is a challenging one. As a Christian, as a person who believes that the God revealed to us in Holy Scripture is the one true God. We all face challenges, even as believers, don't we? From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells us that the Creator God is sovereign over all, that God is infinitely good and unimaginably great. God who cares, a God who is in control. Yet we find ourselves, don't we, stretched, our faith hanging on a thin thread to the breaking point. 
when we encounter so much evil and suffering and pain in our own life, let alone the world around us. I want to suggest to you that there are times in our own personal journey of faith and in our collective experience as a local church when life simply doesn't make sense. When our relationships implode around us, when terminal illness strikes a precious child, when death snatches a loved one in the prime of life, when dreams are shattered before our eyes, when our business fails, our job is terminated, when our earnest prayers before God of a good prayer go unanswered. We cry out to God, don't we? I do. We say, God, where are you? Why don't you do something about this mess? And in those moments of quiet desperation, we feel God let, has let us down. God seems way too distant, too unfeeling, too detached. I think this is true for all of us. And we wonder at points in our faith, especially in God's haunting silence, if we can really believe in him anymore. Now, I have never run a marathon. I'm not sure I have it in me yet. Maybe, perhaps. I've run shorter races, but marathon runners tell me across the board of the experience that's a pivotal moment in the race, sometimes at 18 miles, it's called hitting the wall. It's that moment in running a race when everything around you, your body screams out, you cannot take another step. That the race is all over for you. I want to suggest to you that people of faith face the same wall. And if you're younger here today and younger in your faith, as a person, let me suggest to you that the most robust faith in Jesus Christ encounters the wall, the mysterious wall of the unexplainable, the wall of evil and suffering and cruelty and difficulty in the world. All of us hit the wall. And the question for us today, wherever we are, is can your faith, can my faith, Survive hitting the wall. This is the question that confronts us today across the canyons of time for 2,600 years. 2,600 years ago, a man named Habakkuk hit the wall of faith. Would you say that Habakkuk is not a common name? I mean, have you ever run into a Habakkuk? I've asked that question. I've never anyone raised anybody run into a Habakkuk? And we know from the Hebrew text that this name really doesn't have meaning. I mean, there's people that speculate, but there's really no meaning of the name, which is unusual in the Hebrew text. But nothing is missed in God's inspired word. There's something going on, even with the name. There's an irony. Because the uncommon name of Habakkuk points us to a common experience. To a truth that transcends time and culture and space and gender and 
And that is the uncommon, very common wrestling. <laughs> the common problem of all humanity is how do we hold on to faith in God when life just doesn't make sense? If you brought a Bible with you, electronic or paper, I'd like you to turn to Habakkuk. Good luck. <laughs> and if you don't want to go back to the table of contents, you know, I do that sometimes. I had to memorize the order of books in the Bible when I was a kid, and I still can't find Habakkuk. If you're really brave apart, it's between Nahum and Zephaniah. Good luck. So go back to the table of contents if you need to, wherever you are, scrolling electronic Bible, whatever it is, don't be brave of heart. I want you with me and not looking for the book, the whole sermon, okay? So if you have your Bible open, I want you to follow along. This book is an extraordinary book. And let's enter into it, understanding the historical context. We find ourselves in the 6th century BC. And in this time of Old Testament history, God's covenant people are mired down in the unthinkable morass of idolatry and injustice. We might say that they've lost their loving feeling toward God and toward their neighbor. And looming on the horizon is the geopolitical superpower called Babylon. Just north of Judah and Israel. This rising geopolitical power is known already across the ancient world as a savagery kind of people. Blood, plunder, and conquest is what they breathe. Soon, the city of Jerusalem that you love will be under siege from 606 to 586 BC. It's almost 10 years of destruction. At the end, it will be raised to rubble. Habakkuk looks at the storm building on the horizon over the nation of Judah. And he sees and smells and feels the trembling of the ground of violence, cruelty, hatred, and injustice. Babylon is ready to pounce like a leopard and be as voracious as a wolf. So, Habakkuk cries out to God. He believes in God. He prays to God. He cries out to God. He questions God. And as we enter this text, he is trying to hang on to a thin thread of faith in God. And he hits the wall of faith in the deepest sense of sorrow and foggy bewilderment. If you want to remember Habakkuk, think of this. Hashtag bewildered prophet. The structure of this text is important to see before we dive into it. We are given a specific literary genre, or genre if you want to be technical, of lament. What is lament? The word lament means complaint. And what lament does in the Old Testament text is it gets our complaint out in the open from the gut, and it gives it emotional air to breathe. You'll notice in our text, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 1, there are no chapter breaks in the original language. This is the text we're going to look at this morning. The flow of the text is like this. First, there's a lament to God, Habakkuk's first lament in verses 1 through 4, which have been read to us. Then we hear God's response back to Habakkuk in verses 5 through 11. 
And then finally we hear Habakkuk's second lament to God in verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. Now it has been said that the wise person takes his questions about God to God. And this is what Habakkuk does. In this text, he raises two questions that you and I raise in our journey of faith too. Especially, not if, when our faith hits the wall. First question that he will address is, God, why haven't you answered my prayer? The second question is, God, why aren't you doing something about this mess? So let's dive in. Look at me at verses 2 through 4. Listen carefully to the agony of his heart and the bewilderment of his mind. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction, violence, strife, and contention are before me. They arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes out. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice is perverted. Habakkuk feels the weight of a broken world on his shoulders. And he cries out to God. You'll notice as you listen carefully to the words, he says, God, first of all, you make me see so much evil, violence, and injustice. How long do I have to deal with this? I can't take it anymore. And Habakkuk, in his brilliant poetry, strings together in beautiful symmetry Hebrew words that reinforce the deep emotion he's feeling. In English, we try to pick that up with destruction, violence, contention, strife. It's overwhelming him. What Habakkuk is saying is he is ushering us us into the putrid smell of injustice and cruelty and evil he is smelling. He is seeing evil and injustice and hatred and suffering up close. And his heart is suffocating with sorrow. He is encountering a world he cannot deny. It is an upside down world, friends. It is where the wicked are vanquishing the righteous. And with every pore of his being, he's crying out, this is not right. This ought not to be. He's saying to God, nothing makes sense to me. Now, if you place Habakkuk in the broader storyline of Scripture, we know that Habakkuk is feeling the weight of Genesis 3. And God's good world that has been hideously disfigured and vandalized by sin and evil. Habakkuk knows, you'll notice the text here, that this is God's good world. He is the creator. It was a perfect world. It is now in ruin. He knows that. Evil and injustice and suffering are running rampant and he can't figure it out. Right? Habakkuk wants us to know why he keeps seeing all this. Like, God, I just can't handle it. Why don't you do something about it? Do you feel it? It's all through this chapter. And the threads of Habakkuk's faith are being frayed by overwhelming sorrow of sorrows. Now, this is important to grasp. Everyone to hear this carefully as we enter this book. It is important for us to grasp that Habakkuk's lament, this very transparent cry to God, is not fueled by accusatory anger to God but a sorrowful inquiry of God. 
In other words, listen carefully. Habakkuk is not so much blaming God as he is completely befuddled. He is bewildered by God and his faith is at a breaking point. So in bewildering sorrow, Habakkuk cries out to God, basically, God, you keep standing idly by watching all this. And notice the text, you have two emphatic whys. Why, Lord, why? Isn't that the question we ask? Isn't it the question we ask one time or another in our life or many times? Isn't that the heart-wrenching question that overwhelms our soul when our faith hits the wall? As a pastor, I see this often. I often find myself in the confusing and churning and mysterious wake of sorrow and evil and suffering. I find it in many ways. I confront it. I smell it. I taste it. I wrestle with it. I hurt with it. Many people of strong of faith find themselves at a breaking point of faith. Young parents dealing with the loss of their precious child. A newly widowed mother and her children facing an uncertain future. A fellow urban pastor who calls, whose brokenhearted and fearful congregation has just experienced another shooting, the destruction of a precious teenager in our city. And with hearts broken, tears running down eyes, people look at me and say, Tom, why? And I hear the cries. I hear the fearful minds and hearts. I do. Why, God, why? Why are you silent? Why didn't you answer my prayer, God? See, Habakkuk is not only feeling, he knows something's coming. He, He feels the fear and the weight of judgment on their nation. So part of this agony of his heart and bewilderment is he's anticipating A very difficult scenario ahead. Have you been there? What fears do you face in your life? What are the scenarios that keep you awake at night with for you, your children, your grandchildren, our nation? Your life. This is right where Habakkuk is. He's in the churning wake of so much brokenness and suffering of his people and the fear that lies ahead of them. He lays out his lament to God. And God does respond, doesn't he? If you notice the chapter and you read it closer to this week or today, you'll notice that Habakkuk does not expect this response, nor does he want it. Look at me at verse 5. God says to Habakkuk, Look among the nations, see, wonder, be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if we're told. One of the things in the weeks ahead you're going to want to keep seeing is the many word plays of the word see. There are many words, Hebrew words of see, 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 look, wonder, be astonished. And God wants Habakkuk to see. There is stunning poetic structure in verse 5. Four imperative verbs are lined up like dominoes. Imperative means an urgency. And God says to Habakkuk, look, see, wonder, be astonished. Remember, Habakkuk has complained, God, why are you standing idly by? I can't see this anymore. God responds to Habakkuk in verses 6 through 11. You can look more carefully at that. Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm really doing something. 
You know those Babylonians? Habakkuk knew them well. Those bloodthirsty conquerors who are swift as leopards, notice the text, ravenous as wolves, I'm using them to accomplish my purposes. But that's not what Habakkuk wants. Somebody wants to hear. And you'll notice if you have your Bible open in the sudden and abrupt literary shift in 12 and 13. It's as if God is not done speaking and Habakkuk interrupts him with another complaint. He says, God, you've not answered my prayer. Why aren't you doing something about this mess? When you could do something about this mess. So look at verses 12 to 13. He says, are you not from everlasting? It means eternally past, more history, from ancient history. Oh, Lord, my God, listen, my holy one. We shall not die, or some texts say you shall not die. There's a textual issue there. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk, y'all, is so completely bewildered, so befuddled, so sorrowful by God's apparent unwillingness to intervene and deal with the evil and injustice that is in front of him. And Habakkuk is saying, God, why aren't you doing something about this? He's also saying, notice, God, I know who you are. (laughs) I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. Your character and power is there. You are the eternal one. He uses the word holy one, you'll notice. God, you're still in charge of the broken world. I know that. You are the creator. You are the sovereign one. I know your character. I know your strength. You can't even look at evil. So God, none of this computes to me. And in verses 14 through 17, you'll notice Habakkuk reminds God that humans and nations are simply like fish in the sea going everywhere, nothing to net them. Whether they're nations or people, God can take care of evil. He could just gather it up all in a net and deal with it, whether it's Babylon or an individual. It's like little fish. Do you, God? Why aren't you doing something? God, you hate evil. You can take care of evil. Why are you silent and standing idly by as if indifferent or passive? I can't take this anymore. My faith in you cannot survive your silence much longer. The picture is, why God, why? I'm not seeing it. I'm not feeling it. God, you can do something. Have you ever been there? I have. In my faith journey. One Old Testament scholar brilliantly captures this. And he makes this statement, and I think this captures so much of where Habakkuk is and where you and I are, or we will be at some point in our faith journey. This scholar writes, as he unpacks the Hebrew, he says, a silent heaven, it has been said, is the greatest mystery of our existence. I'm going to say that again. It's such brilliant insight. A silent heaven, it has been said, is the greatest mystery of our existence. This is where Habakkuk is. is. Yet we will see in the days ahead and as we move forward, God's apparent silence must not be interpreted that he does not hear, that he does not care, or that he does not speak. Boy, we're held into the tension of dissonance here. The book of Psalms has much lament, doesn't it? 
much like Habakkuk. For example, Psalm 5 begins with, Oh God, give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Psalm 10, you may remember this. Why, O oh Lord, he starts, this is David, Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? If I translate that today, God, why aren't you interested in my marriage? <laughs> in my family, my job, and all the suffering and injustice I see around me? Why? See, Habakkuk confronts us with raw reality. And he raises the question to the reader, the thoughtful reader who understands the text. So how can faith in God survive the apparent silence of God, okay? How, how, how can your faith survive? How can your faith survive the seeming passivity of God, the apparent indifference of God? How can it survive when it hits the wall? So Habakkuk gives us three timeless truths that help us when our faith hits the wall. The first one is that we are to pour out our heart to God. God, Habakkuk reminds us, can handle it. In fact, God welcomes it. Did you hear that? Sometimes I think, especially if we've been in church a while or we've been in the Christian faith a while, we think that for me to express an honest lament to God and frustration and complaint to God is unspiritual. Or expresses we don't have faith in God. But Habakkuk and the Psalms remind us of an important truth to wrap around your heart and mind. That honest lament, heartfelt lament, does not weaken faith. It deepens it. Habakkuk is unusual. It's a hidden jewel, but it's also an unusual book. An unusual prophet. Than all the other prophets. Why? Because in this case, in the other prophets, most of the time, the prophets receive a message from God for God's people to inform them or encourage them. This prophet receives words given by God so we can join him in lament over the suffering and evil of the world. God, the God of lament, welcomes our lament so much he gives us sacred, inspired words to lament with him about the evil and brokenness and sorrow of his good world gone to ruin. The God of lament. Do you think about that? Do we grasp it? The God of lament invites you and me to pour our hearts out to him and with him to be transparent and honest, to groan with him and the spirit of God and all creation that longs for the day when all will be made well again. When evil and suffering and cruelty and pain will all be caught up in the net like a fish. Forever. Lament is expressed with sorrowful inquiry of God. It is not accusatory blame at God. But lament, a bewilderment, an inquiry, an identification is corporate praise to God. It's a sweet aroma to God. This is why so many psalms have a lament genre, either personal or corporate. And remember the psalms, if you've read the Bible, are the Old Testament book of hymn, like a hymnal or the book of common prayer of our day. Lament is important. When we pour our, 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 out our hearts together, with God and to God in regard to evil and injustice and suffering of his good and broken world, we identify with God, we join in with God who hates and laments evil and injustice and suffering. 
So when our faith hits the wall, Habakkuk reminds us to pour our heart out to God. He can not only handle it, he welcomes it. Because honest lament does not weaken our faith. It deepens it and is pleasing to God. Now the second truth emerges as well. And that is we are to be angry and sorrowful about evil. The writer James reminds us of this, and we often misunderstand this verse. Be angry and do not sin. And we often restrict it to relationships of interpersonal nature, and that's good. But the broader storyline of Scripture is, what is James saying? We are to be angry. The question is, what are we to be angry at? There is a holy sense of anger. So what gets you angry, my friends? What gets you angry? And Habakkuk reminds us that there is something that should get us really angry. And that is the presence and destruction of evil in the world and all the pain and injustice and cruelty and suffering that comes with it. This is our Father's world. It is His grand masterpiece that has been vandalized, disfigured, and hideously attacked by the mastermind of evil himself, Ben Shakar, son of the morning, the evil one, Satan himself. All too often I hear in my conversations with people as sort of a whatever shrug. Talk about brokenness and justice and evil and suffering. It's kind of, oh, whatever. It's all too easy to feel the brokenness of our world and our lives and simply shrug our shoulders in cynical indifference. But when we encounter evil and injustice and suffering, whether that is our own lives and our own sin, or our neighbors' lives, or our city, or our nation, or our globe. We must not, as God's covenant people, shrug our shoulders in whatever kind of, whatever indifference. Habakkuk, Habakkuk reminds us first, we are to lament with God. We are to cry out with God. Oh God, how long? How long must we wait for you to make all things new, to set the world fully aright? I was reminded of that this week. My bride Liz and I spent a few hours with one of, I think, our finest, one of our finest local ministry partners, the Hope Center. And there are congregational members that have been very involved in the Hope Center and even on the board and continue to be. The Hope Center is in one of the most blighted and hopeless areas of our city. Liz and I wanted to spend some time with Matt Farmer and the team. And we spent time at the new Benton Garden that allows vegetables and a lot of aesthetic and utility... Uh, utility beauty for our, many of the most desperate neighborhoods of our city. And after we were done, we walked. Have you ever done this? We walked in the middle of the day holding hands, Tom and Liz, down Linwood Avenue and Prospect. Have you ever done that? As we walked, the brokenness of the people in one of the most desperate neighborhoods boarded up homes, shattered lives, the lack of economic vitality. I found myself not going, whatever. I found myself aching inside. Sorrow. And I cried out to God in my heart, Lord, this ought not to be. And I wondered what was to be my personal response. What was our church's response to this? What might it mean? And I have to tell you, I felt angry about it all. 
our city's deeply wounded past, present hopelessness. And I was also reminded, ultimately, where my anger, ultimately where my anger was to be directed towards, not toward the drug dealers I saw, not to the pimps who are caught up in evil's net, not to the racism and economic injustice of the past or present, which is very real, not to the government, but ultimately to the mastermind of evil himself, Satan himself, the liar and destroyer of God's good world and his people. I believe God is angry and he's sorrowful about what he sees in our city. And I believe he wants us not only to look with him at it as a church, to be a beacon of hope, to be his loving hands and feet, but to lament with him and to cry out, oh Lord, how long? Our stinging tears of lament are praises to God. And when we cry out of lament, we identify with Jesus who in confronting the hideous evil of death, can you imagine standing at Lazarus' tomb and the Bible says Jesus wept. He lamented the destruction of his good world and death itself. And when he looked over the city of Jerusalem, the city he loved, that beautiful city, he saw all its brokenness and Luke's gospel says Jesus wept over that city. And on the cruel Roman cross, he lamented with his father and he lamented the evil of the world, and God did not stand idly by. Jesus, who laments with us, laid down his life for you and me. When your faith hits the wall, and it will, Habakkuk reminds us, pour out your heart to God. Be angry and sorrowful about evil. But lastly, notice where Habakkuk leads, leads, leaves us this morning. In chapter 2, verse 1. Keep your eyes and ears open. Notice the text, verse 1. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. When Habakkuk's faith hits the wall, rather than turning his back to God, he turns his face toward God. The prophet who said earlier in, in his poetry, I can't take seeing this evil anymore, now says to God, okay, I'll keep my eyes open and my ears open. Things don't make sense to me, God. I'm feeling deep sorrow and despair and bewilderment that your apparent silence and indifference, please intervene. But Habakkuk keeps his eyes of faith open, doesn't he? He holds on to faith for dear life. Habakkuk can't see it. He can't get it. He puts himself in a position to both see and hear what God is doing. And notice the primary metaphor he ends with. It is the watchtower. It's a picture. It's great on on a veteran's weekend, right? Picture of the military man, the sentry on the city wall, looking uh, for his people, watching the threats outside. He says, I'm going to get up on the city wall. I'm going to get on the watchtower. I'm going to keep my eyes open. My faith is at a breaking point. I can't understand it, but I'm going to keep my eyes open. I'm going to watch. I'm going to hang on to you, God, for dear life. I'm going to go to the watchtower. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. I'm going to wholeheartedly trust you, even when it all doesn't make sense. And this is the truth that jumps out as it is this. Faith is not always having a good answer for everything, but it is staying on the watchtower of lament with him. When evil threatens to overwhelm your belief, when satisfying answers are elusive to your finite grasp, a faith that deepens and makes it through the wall 
is one that cries out to God, friends. One that tenaciously holds on to God and will not let him go. Bob Dylan is right. Everything is broken. Mumford and Sons are right. Don't tell me it's all fine. It's not. So when life doesn't make sense, when your faith hits the wall, will you keep your eyes open? Will you keep your ears open? Will you hang on to him? And will you join me on the watchtower of lament? I spend quite a bit of time there. Oh, Lord, how long? How long? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we cry out to you and with you. How long will you wait to return to this sin-ravaged planet? How long, oh, Lord, will you make all things new? In the very depths of our bones, we feel the brokenness of our lives and our world. Our hearts ache in a hate-filled world where good is made to appear evil today, and evil is celebrated as good. A broken world where the powerful oppress the powerless. A broken world, Lord, where the unborn, the most vulnerable among us are destroyed on the altar of convenience and choice. We lament. A broken world where fellow image bearers are enslaved and sold and trafficked for sexual pleasure and economic gain. We lament. A world where children go to bed malnourished and hungry. We lament. And we cry out to you, O Lord, how long? We turn our eyes toward you, Lord. We look to you. We cry out to you. We need you. We stand at the watchtower of faith, the watchtower of lament. Holy Spirit of God, do a new and surprising work in our midst, in our city, our nation, our world. Crucified and risen Savior, in whose name we pray, deliver us from evil. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 